Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to Bibliophiles for another conversation about the great tradition, the big ideas. Today, we're going to be discussing something a little bit more upbeat than last episode, so everyone can breathe a sigh Then the last relief. two. What is the good death? What is the problem of pain? That's two in a row, man. You can hardly get yeah, darker. Those were a little yeah. intense. At least to the, the important question, where is the nearest bridge? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> crucial, crucial question. Where is the nearest bridge or a high thing to jump off? Oh, of? right. Yeah. Oh, my. Well. <laughs> okay, so this pertains to the question on the table today, and so I want to ask it to you to start with here. With, with what real historical or present day figure would you most like to be friends and why what about that friendship do you imagine would be fruitful or fun or engaging or otherwise useful anyone alive or dead can it be a fictional figure or historical figure got to be a real person person Mm. i think mine's going to be uh revelatory and so i don't know if i want to say it (laughs) <laughs> that was part of the, part of the okay. point. I, I really <laughs> want to be friends with the couple, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. I think they look fun and cool and like good people. And I want to be friends with them. <laughs> Are those historical <laughs> people, man? No, but answer. he said, or modern it's day. Historical yeah. or present day. Who would, I don't know, Dad, who would you choose? Dead. Alive or dead, huh? Well, I wouldn't be historical because I've read enough history to know that all of the times in history before this one we're just horrible sucked. times to yeah. live. <laughs> they all sucked. So I wouldn't want to go back in time at all. Okay, but it's about the person. So you can bring them up to present day. How's that? Oh, okay. Well, that's better. Then it might want, I might want to um, hang out with either a revolutionary war hero like George Washington or, or Ethan Allen or somebody like that. Or I would like to hang out with an American Puritan leader like John Winthrop or somebody that like sounds that. Sounds like a bucket of laughs. Yeah. I don't, and that Puritan wow. I just, cause I would, I would want to confirm a suspicion I have that those guys weren't as dour as the history books tell mm. us. I'll bet they weren't. And so I would want to know, huh. you know, yeah, I bet I you're right about that. That's pretty interesting. I like that one. Mom, what about you? That's a hard one. It's so broad. I mean, do I think well, history? Yeah. Do I think literature? Well, what do, do I think? think? I the know. office? I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> Come back to me. I'm still thinking. Okay, Emily, your turn. Oh, man, I you've even given me warning about this one, and I still don't have a good answer for you. The point isn't uh, you two A-getters. A I know. Answer. For goodness <laughs> sake, you guys. <laughs> I literally chose some pop, pop culture icons, for goodness sake. The point, the you great is Karens, isn't to have the right answer. Karens. A bunch of Karens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. What's her name? I have to think of her name. I would want to be friends with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. What I don't know who that is. Great answer. Author oh, of yeah. Okay. Oh. Just a, a modern day comedian. Yeah, writer. she looks like a good time. She she is very witty. 
and it Real. seems like she would yeah. be a good time. Okay, all right. Hmm. Mom, At least it is me. down to you. Well, I can't just name <laughs> Oh my gosh, Mom, it's an icebreaker. Oh, yes, so you can, in keeping. because you have to. Good job, Ian. Now show. it's going to be 50 more minutes of your mom's <laughs> 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 wants to be friends with. <laughs> it's brutal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Roasted. Okay, all right. I would love to hang out at the Burden Baby Pub with the Inklings. I want to. I want to know yeah. Tolkien and, and Lewis. Um, I should have said Good that. Choice. That's my answer yeah. too. I think that's the. Best I think that's answer. the best answer that there is. You might have. Personally. You might have given the correct answer, Missy. Mom gets an right. A. Oh, I got it. I, I, I you got an A. That's amazing. <laughs> oh. um, I I went back and forth because I thought to myself, I'd love to be friends with a with a musician that we could jam all the time. And there's there's a long list of people on the list of musicians that would be fun. But also, kind of like what you said, Dad, a lot of them are from the jazz era. And talk about your miserable occupations and scenes to be a part. I mean, most of them died of drug overdoses yeah. young. So, right, yeah. that so actually, I think I probably couldn't do that. When you think about that for a minute, the question sets us all up. Because what, what it's asking us is, who do you re- who's, uh, which person do you have an idea of that you really are drawn to? But reality is that that idea that you have of that person is almost certainly uh, optimistic, rose-colored. Um, right. You know, emphasizes all the admirable things about that person and glosses over the fact that they were they had feet of clay like yeah. everybody else. So it would probably be disappointing. Well, maybe. On the other hand, in the term friendship, which we're going to talk about today, because the question on the table is, what is true friendship? Right? It's implied that you actually know each other well. So presumably you've learned to put up with one another's foibles and actually enjoy spending time together. So my final answer, I think, will be like Megan's pop culture I think Ryan Reynolds has got to be one of the funniest three or four <laughs> men ever born be, onto yeah. the planet. And I'm convinced that every moment spent with him is a moment where you're weeping with laughter. So I'm, I'll say Ryan Reynolds. If you ever hear this, Ryan, please. Please. <laughs> call me. Please. <laughs> Emily. Call me. Please. Call me. <sighs> okay. So the, the question on the table, what, what is true friendship? And I, I think this, this question needs little definition. It's pretty direct. But I want to offer as fuel for our discussion or as a starting place, a favorite poem of mine from Khalil Gibran from his famous work, The Prophet, which is a chapbook of poetry about the, the, the conceit of it is a prophet coming out of isolation to move about the world and being approached by people and, and giving poetic meditations on just about every aspect of the human experience. And his poem on friendship is gorgeous. So I would like to read it for you before we jump into, the, into today's fisticuffs. And a youth said, speak to us of friendship. And he answered, saying, your friend is your needs answered. He is your field, which you sow with love and reap with thanksgiving. And he is your board and your fireside. For you come to him with your hunger and you seek him for peace. When your friend speaks his mind, you fear not the nay in your own mind, nor do you withhold the eye. And when he is silent, your heart ceases not to listen to his heart. For without words, in friendship, all thoughts, all desires, all expectations are born and shared with joy that is unacclaimed. When you part from your friend, you grieve not, for that which you love most in him may be clearer in his absence, as the mountain to the climber is clearer from the plain. And let there be no purpose in friendship, save the deepening of the spirit." For love that seeks aught but the disclosure of its own mystery is not love, 
but a net cast forth, and only the unprofitable is caught. And let your best be for your friend. If you must know the ebb of your tide, let him know its flood also. For what is your friend that you should seek him with hours to kill? Seek him always with hours to live. For it is his to fill your need, but not your emptiness. And in the sweetness of friendship, let there be laughter and sharing of pleasures. For in the dew of little things, the heart finds its morning and is refreshed. Khalil Gibran, ladies and gentlemen. That is beautiful. With that little meditation on friendship, what did we find in our, in our ramblings this week? Well, it's Emily and I in the hot seat today, I think. So I came prepared, but my, my thoughts are not quite as, um, <laughs> well, they're not all as formal as that. Uh, <laughs> one of my references is actually, well, my pop culture reference gave it away a little bit, but I'm going to talk about The Office today as a depiction Sweet. of friendship. Uh, not, not my office, not the Center for Lit office, you understand, but the TV show, The Office. Which I'm, is also I'm no longer a interested. haven of it friendship. It is. That's Thank correct, you. By the yeah, way. the Center for Lit Office <laughs> is the heart and soul of friendship. But um, but I was going to talk a little bit about that TV show as a representation of friendship. But as I was thinking on it, um, a couple of C.S. Lewis quotes came to mind, actually. And I want to just sort of frame my thoughts on The Office with Lewis, if I could. There are two Lewis quotes that I was thinking of. One of them goes like this. Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art. It has no survival value. Rather, it's one of those things which give value to survival. And the other goes like this. Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And with these two uh, quotes in my mind, I started to think about the office in particular because it's such a, well, it's kind of a melting pot of all different kinds of people and all different kinds of friendships. And the friendship is kind of a byproduct of the fact that they have to sit next to each other, not because they've chosen one another for any reason, just because they have to. And uh, as you watch the show, you become friends with all of them too, by necessity. And I think that these two quotes kind of uh, frame everything I want to say. In particular, identification seems to be at the heart of Lewis's definition of friendship. And I think of this in a fond way when I identify with people over their strengths, right? You're a scratch golfer? I'm a scratch golfer. I'm Let's be best friends. <laughs> That's a really positive Said identity. no one yeah. ever. Right, exactly. But that one. <laughs> Said liars all exactly. over the country. But that one would be positive. You'd be proud of that association. You'd want to be friends with that person because you're identifying over something that makes you good. You're good. I'm good. Let's be friends. But then there's a neutral kind of identification. You like watching the Great British Baking Show? I like watching The Great British Baking Show. Let's be friends, right? doesn't say that you're good at baking. It's just an interest that you have. It's something that you can add at the end of your name, a fan of something that doesn't have anything to do with your qualifications. But I think the deepest friendships are actually based on uh, a shared flaw or a shared problem or struggle, whether willingly or grudgingly. Those characters whose friendships are the deepest identify over their foibles somehow. And I saw this in The Office. After all, Michael Scott, the main character of The Office, is one of those guys that you don't want to identify with at first, at least. In the first couple seasons of the show, he's, he's really, <laughs> how do you describe Michael Scott? He's just obnoxious and inappropriate and insensitive. And he thinks that he's awesome. And you start watching the show and you think, man, I just really hope 
that I'm not like Michael Scott, right? I've actually heard Ian say this before. I can't watch The Office because I'm too afraid (laughs) that I'm like Michael Scott. He's all of these ways out loud. He's vulnerable because everyone can see what kind of guy he is except him. He thinks he's awesome. And I think that's the point. I think it's the point of the show that you are supposed to be uncomfortable as you watch Michael relate to the world. And his errors and his blunders really make him kind of ugly and vulnerable at times. And you worry that you might be as blatantly obvious and you might be as blind to it as he is. You sure but, do. Yeah, yes, you do. You it's do. it's part of the the painful comedy of of Steve Carell's role, which is just amazingly done. But I would argue that as you watch the show, you're drawn to Michael, kind of in spite of yourself. He's hapless and he's blind, but he longs for his office to be a thriving community. And he really does love the people who work for him, who are not without their own flaws. He says famously, the people that you work with are, when you get down to it, your very best friends. And this is said in a moment where he's supposed to be a boss, not a friend, and he's failing miserably at his actual role. And the office is supposed to be a productive, you know, professional place. And he's wrecking it. (laughs) But at the same time, there's something really heartwarming uh, at the center of what what he means for his office to be. And just to make a long story short, as the seasons progress, at least from my perspective, the audience and his coworkers together can't help but acknowledge that Michael's uh, beneath his inescapable idiocy. He's just got a good heart and he's downright winning and he gets into all kinds of scrapes and he can't get himself out and he needs them. He needs them to love him just like he loves them. And and in the end, he loves them and they know it and they love him too. And you you kind of hope by the end that you're as lucky as Michael Scott. And I think that that show is profound. As silly as it is, it's got a profound something to say about the the foundations of friendship, connecting over things that make us vulnerable and maybe um, wanting to relate to and cover one another because of the things that are uh, embarrassing rather than the things that we're proud of. Wow. That's almost enough to make me want to watch the show. Almost. <laughs> I just can't. I cannot do it. Do you guys remember that? I've seen a handful of episodes scattered across yeah. all the seasons. Do you guys remember the episode where he has promised to some sort of an organization for underprivileged oh, yes. children Scott's a bunch tots. of computers to send them off to, to college with? Oh, yes. Scott's tots. And he realizes, <laughs> oh, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's worse than that. His original promise oh. is to pay for their college education. Oh, I know. There's no winking at the fact that it's extraordinarily painful humor. He says at one point, and then in that moment, I knew exactly what to do. But in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great writing is what that is. My goodness. You just can't get around it. But I do think, I think the show has something really profound to say, and it might be a good friendship is one where your weaknesses make room for you and for everybody else. Everybody's allowed to be themselves because Michael is, you know? It seems like that's actually the foundation of the best of sitcoms that you ident- your laughter actually comes from. If, if it's uh, wholesome and true laughter, it comes from the fact that you identify with the flaws of the characters. I mean, go back to Miranda, right? The reason you laugh at Miranda is because, oh, man, I have... I, maybe I haven't done it that extreme, but like that, that that's me. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing though, yeah. <laughs> well, my example is not as funny as that, but 
about a couple years ago, I watched a straight to Netflix film and it got absolutely terrible reviews and I really liked it, <laughs> which, um, <laughs> oops, I usually which have oops. pretty good taste <laughs> in film, but apparently the world does not agree with me on this one. But I do. Okay. It, it's The Professor and the Madman. It's a 2019 straight to streaming film starring Mel Gibson and Sean Penn. And I think part of the reason that I love it is that uh, I grew up watching Mel Gibson and I can't help it. He will always mean com it's also comfort to me. <laughs> his, 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 I grew it myself. It is not a prop beard in that yes, movie. It's, it's the most glorious beard. But anyway, the story is actually based on a book by Simon Winchester from 1998. And it's the true story of the Oxford English Dictionary. And it centers around the story of a professor, James Murray, who is a self-proclaimed autodidact uh, who rises in the ranks and is given the job of compiling this magnificent project. He wants to document the history of every word in the English language. Um, he, his goal, he says, is to uh, pin down all of God's creation so that he can it can be fully understood in words, which is the way it was meant to be created, or the way, in, the way it was created. And he sets about this task, and he's not liked in Oxford um, because he doesn't come from the the educated class. He rose well, he's by like, his also own. Also, because he's Scottish, and he's Scottish. Yes, he's a foreigner. Um, All the good ones are. And so he sets out about this impossible task, discovering that he has really gotten himself in way over his head. And just when the project is about to crash, he gets this note from someone that has documented, he, he asked for public help and some trickle in, some help from the public trickles in. But one in particular arrives with a like document of just tons of words, like absolutely overwhelming and saves the project from failure so that they can show all of these words and their documentations to the people funding the project so that it will continue on because it just pushes them over the edge. And this anonymous contributor is Sean Penn, who we find out is a, uh, he's locked away in an insane asylum for murdering the, this man that he assumed was out to get him. But it was just an innocent man. His paranoid delusion. Yep, he has. He's paranoid, and he ends up killing this man and is uh, put away for it. But while he is in the insane asylum, he, he, his good behavior. His he's a doctor, and he helps um, other people who are in trouble in the asylum and doctors them. And so he's noticed, and he starts um, being given comforts and books and pens and paper. And he's an educated man himself. And uh, when this he sees the call go out for help for the dictionary. He decides that this is how he's going to make meaning out of his life. And so he strikes up a correspondence with James Murray, the professor, uh, and they go back, they write back and forth to each other um, and enjoy their common interest uh, words as well as uh, sharing in the work of this project together. But as the story continues, the madman, Sean Penn, I don't remember his actual name, but he ends up getting worse and worse. Um, he actually strikes up a relationship with the widow of the man that he killed. And she actually becomes quite close to him, ends up forgiving him for what he did. And that torments him because he feels like he should be punished. Um, that's kind of beside the point. That, that's on, that would be for what is love. But I want to focus on the friendship between the professor and the madman. And 
basically this relationship ends up driving the madman crazy and he goes back to i, I mean crazier he goes back to being he regresses he regresses in his progress um so that when Mel Gibson, James Murray, finally does come to visit him at one point, uh, there's this really powerful scene in which Sean Penn just says he he's like writhing on the floor. He um, says, there are people under the floorboards trying to get me. They're trying to murder me. And then he stops and he looks up and says, I'm sorry, I don't I don't know what happened. Um, but he, he looks at Mel Gibson and he says, now you see me and now I want you to leave. And Mel Gibson says, I came here to see my friend. There's this really powerful moment where even though they've been corresponding now that they've actually looked into each other's eyes and seen each other for who they really are, there's a moment where it could be rejection. And you would think that the professor would reject the madman, but, but it's actually the other way around. The madman rejects the professor because he's afraid of being seen. And uh, it turns out that it, it kind of ends up working the other way. The professor ends up saving the madman um, from... He, he starts getting really horrible treatment. They try to save him in all the horrible um, old-fashioned medical ways. They basically torture him. And the professor's wife tells him at one point, sometimes when people push us away, that's when they need the most resistance. And he goes to uh, save his friend in spite of being told to go away. But I thought it was a really powerful example of friendship being not only shared likenesses and uh, um, working together for a a common cause, but when the chips are down and you actually see each other for who you really are moving forward anyway. So friendship is, is being seen. It sounds like it's it's really concurrent with what Megan was saying about the office too. Although the office does, cloaks it in humor, and the the professor and the madman, which I've also seen, was pretty heavy. Not funny. Yeah, yeah, not funny at all. Man, that's beautiful. Okay, so friendship also teases, and so lightening the mood a little bit. <laughs> I would like to just acknowledge that Emily just gave us a precise of the movie blow by blow, blow so that we don't need to watch it now. <laughs> oh, I didn't start by saying that I'm not going to give spoilers away because I knew that I was going to. Oh, that's, true. Wow. that's a back burn. That's a, back, that's a pretty good clap back, I think. That's, that is so funny, you guys. Oh, my goodness. Watching you two snipe at each other. <laughs> no, it's a room full of English teachers. We should know better than to do plot summary. But you kind of need it. It's actually it's one of those things well, you have to have to, have to understand. understand. Oh. If you're using a, a plot in order to illustrate a principle, it's kind of hard not to I know. summarize. you got to summarize. So, so does, does the, the older corpus of Western literature and art more broadly agree with us in our modern sensibilities about friendship? Well, since we're talking about being laughed at, do you mind if I, ahead, if I take yeah, a crack at totally. this? I, because Ian is not contributing examples, decided to fill in his shoes for him and obviously went to the Wind in the Willows for an example of friendship. I I know the whole story of Wind of the Willows is kind of this grand narrative of friendship, but I actually wanted to go to this little vignette from the beginning, from the riverbank, and it's when Mole and Rat are first becoming friends, and there's this fantastic moment where Rat is kind of shepherding Mole in the ways of the river and takes him out on a boat ride, and Mole gets a little self-confident a little too soon. He decides that he wants to row the boat, and 
Uh, Rowdy tells him that it's not time and that he's not ready. <laughs> but I think I, if you guys don't mind, I think I'd like to read it because it's just so delightful. By all means. The rat shook his head with a smile. Not yet, my young friend, he said. Wait till you've had a few lessons. It's not so easy as it looks. The mole was quiet for a minute or two, but he began to feel more and more jealous of Rat, sculling so strongly and so easily along, and his pride began to whisper that he could do it every bit as well. He jumped up and seized the skulls so suddenly that the Rat, who was gazing out over the water and saying more poetry things to himself, was taken by surprise and fell backwards off his seat with his legs in the air for the second time, while the triumphant mole took his place and grabbed the skulls with entire confidence. Stop it, you silly ass, cried the rat from the bottom of the boat. You can't do it. You'll have us over. The mole flung his skulls back with a flourish and made a great dig at the water. He missed the surface altogether. His legs <laughs> flew up above his head, and he found himself lying on the top of the prostrate rat. Greatly alarmed, he made a grab at the side of the boat. And the next moment, sploosh, <laughs> over went the boat, and he found himself struggling in the river. Oh my, how cold the water was, and oh, how very wet it felt. How it sang in his ears as he went down, down, down. How bright and welcome the sun looked as he rose to the surface, coughing and spluttering. How black was his despair when he felt himself sinking again. Then a firm paw gripped him by the back of his neck. It was the rat, and he was evidently laughing. The mole could feel him laughing, right down his arm and through his paw, and so into his, the mole's, neck. The rat got hold of his skull and shoved it under the mole's arm, then he did the same by the other side of him, and swimming behind, propelled the helpless animal to shore, hauled him out, and set him down on the bank, a squashy, pulpy lump of misery. When the rat had rubbed him down a bit and wrung some of the wet out of him, he said, Now then, old fellow, trot up and down the towing path as hard as you can till you're warm and dry again, while I die for the luncheon basket. And later on, uh, he, he apologizes and said, Ratty, my generous friend, I'm very sorry indeed for my foolish and ungrateful conduct. My heart quite fails me when I think how I might have lost that beautiful luncheon basket. Indeed, I have been a complete ass, and I know it. We overlook this once, and forgive me, and let things go on as before. That's all right, bless you, responded the rat cheerily. What's a little wet to a water rat? beautiful this, this absolutely gorgeous moment where the mole really does make a complete ass out of himself yeah and just like in the professor and the madman only more lighthearted, the rat gets a full-on glimpse of he sees full sight of who mole is and he laughs instead of getting upset or offended or, or abandoning him the that the actual response between true friends is laughter at foibles because they're not threatening which is why I, I always think of that meme that says something like, if your acquaintance falls down, you quickly go over and pick them back up. If your best friend falls down, you laugh at them. You laugh at them. <laughs> it's true. It's totally so true. true. <laughs> uh, and if they that laugh at awesome. themselves, then you become best friends That's very right. quickly. <laughs> yep. There are so many scenes in Wind, of, Wind in the Willows that could be used in such a way as you've used that one. I wonder if there are more we want to talk about. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's amazing that Emily chose a passage from the Wind in the Willows because I actually came prepared today with another one. It's a little bit more serious, although the book is not super heavy in and of itself, but it is all about friendship. And I focused a little bit more on Ratty's particular struggle. He is a creature of the riverbank and he is satisfied and settled in his ways. When we meet him, Mole is young and impressionable and has left his home 
to find adventure out in the world. He's been pulled away from his little mole hole uh, by the call of spring. And we're glad. We're glad that he left his hole because he found Ratty and they, like Emily has described, have become very true friends uh, connected over real things. But late in the story, we see Ratty having a little crisis uh, of his own. A seafaring rat comes to town and tells him stories of the wide world and kind of tries to draw him away from all that he's been satisfied by up to that point. He's been ultimately fulfilled and loyal to his riverbank um, up to this moment, but has has doubts all of a sudden. And it's almost like Graham talks about it like he's got a spell put on him and he's forgotten himself. This, this loyalty, uh, this better self, he's betrayed it and given in to this spell of the wide world. And Mole comes upon him as he's packing his bags and about to abandon his entire life and everything that he is. He comes upon him, and I think that I'm just going to read, if it's okay with you guys, this section uh, from the story, because I think this demonstrates uh, true friendship as well. Why, where are you off to, Ratty? asks the mole in great surprise, grasping him by the arm. Going south with the rest of them, murmured the rat in a dreamy monotone, never looking at him. Seawards first, and then on shipboard, and so to the shores that are calling me. He pressed resolutely forward, still without haste, but with dogged fixity of purpose. But the mole, now thoroughly alarmed, placed himself in front of him, and looking into his eyes, saw that they were glazed and set and turned a streaked and shifting gray, not his friend's eyes, but the eyes of some other animal. Grappling with him strongly, he dragged him inside, threw him down, and held him. The rat struggled desperately for a few moments, and then his strength seemed suddenly to leave him, and he lay still and exhausted with closed eyes, trembling. Presently, the mole assisted him to rise and placed him in a chair, where he sat collapsed and shrunken into himself, his body shaken by a violent shivering, passing in time into a hysterical fit of dry sobbing. Mole made the door fast, threw the satchel into a drawer and locked it, and sat down quietly on the table by his friend, waiting for the strange seizure to pass. Gradually, the rat sank into a troubled doze, broken by starts and confused murmurings of things strange and wild and foreign to the unenlightened mole, and from that he passed into a deep slumber. I could keep reading, but I think that this scene demonstrates enough of what I want to talk about. Mole identifies a strangeness in the rat in this scene, and it's this strange calling away from home. And I think that his, beyond his behavior, which is obviously the action of a friend, when you're not behaving like yourself, for your friend to step in and remind you who you are, maybe even forcibly, is obviously the act of friendship. But I think there's something deeper here uh, going on. At the end of this passage, Mole uh, gives Ratty a piece of paper and a pen because he's loved his lyrical poems up to this time, and then leaves him alone to work things out in his own heart and mind and to come back to himself. He in this quiet, silent action, uh, demonstrates a knowledge of his friend and an acceptance. This is the way that you will find yourself again. And I know you, and I love you, and here you'll stay at home, and I will stay with you, but write it out. Go ahead and write some poetry and you'll feel better. And I was thinking (laughs) on uh, how deep this scene feels to me, and I realized that I think it's significant. Mole, we met him leaving his own home. And we're glad he did, like I said before. But we also get a scene where he's sad. He's sad that he left. He encounters his mole hole again and he cries at all that he's left. 
And I think that in this scene, he's identifying with Rat and this, this uh, doubt, this doubt that home has enough to satisfy him and is sharing his own experience, basically saying, don't go that way. It is enough. There, there's adventure enough at home. That's one of the lines in the story that I think is the strongest. Adventure enough here in the riverbank. And so let me, as your friend, remind you so that you don't have to go experience the pain that, that this really is sufficient. So stay. And I think uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't read the scene that way before and thought it was powerful. That actually reminds me, this, uh, the quietness, the way in which Mole is able to sense what is wrong with his friend and not have to say anything, yeah. but just acts. That ring, reminds me a lot of The Chosen, oh, actually, yeah. by Kaim Potok, um, who By the end of the story, the two best friends of the novel, Danny and uh, Ruben, uh, have learned through suffering to communicate in the silence and in the climactic scene of the book. Uh, Danny, who's suffering greatly, cries, and Reuben comes next to him and just lays his hand on him and, and cries with him. Mm. And they cry in silence together, and no words pass between them. But the just that unspoken communication that happens through identification and friendship. Yeah, it's interesting. In that particular story, it all happens as a result of um, a shared suffering. Mm -hmm. And it demonstrates that the suffering itself... Um, creates a kind of empathy in the sufferer that produces a bond of friendship, which totally corroborates everything you guys have been saying so far today. Yeah, agreed. Also, the, it's important, I think, in all these examples to notice that the, the shared suffering creates a bond um, in the absence of other forms of, of um, common ground. I mean, mm -hmm. it creates a bond between people who otherwise would have little nothing to common. nothing in common, right? There's mm -hmm. something substantial about it that we don't know. I mean, rat and mole are, are different species that come from different <laughs> yeah. places. Quite literally right, yeah. different species. <laughs> right. And, you know, Danny and Reuven in The Chosen are are from different sects of Judaism that are are at odds yeah, with each other. Antithetical, right? yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking of, of that 1993 kids movie, The Sandlot. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. You know, yes. you're killing me, Smalls. That yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, totally. You're killing me. And the little protagonist of that um, of that movie has nothing in common with his friend group. They all are good at baseball, and he's terrible. In fact, he doesn't know anything <laughs> about it. Right? He has he steals his father's uh, prized baseball, and they ask him where would he get it, and he said he got it from a lady named Babe. <laughs> like Ruth, Babe Ruth, Lady named Ruth, or something like that. The great so, Bambino. Yeah, they have nothing in common at all, except there's a willingness on the the one kid's part to identify, like you were saying earlier, Megan, to identify with this misfit and say, "You belong with us. You got a place here with me mm -hmm. for no reason, for no reason at all." And I think shared suffering is maybe even a stronger motivation for that common ground. But I think it's interesting to notice that it happens in the absence of some other kind of of consanguinity. Yeah, that's that's really true. I I was thinking about uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader by Lewis from the Narnia stories, which begins with what once there was a boy named Eustace Scrub and he almost deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> and he almost <laughs> deserved that? it. He almost deserved it. And yeah. um, in one of the major things that happens, one of the major plot arcs in that story is watching Eustace Scrub become human. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> in the beginning, you know, he's the product of some experimental school and he's awful. He's just horrible in every he's way. He's a little toe rag. He's, he's, he just, he's a rat, you know, but as he experiences some suffering of his own, um, all of his dragon-like tendencies come out. And 
Edmund, a character from an earlier story, identifies with him in his dragonish uh, characteristics and sidles up next to him and shares with him the love and the belonging and the acceptance that he found in the lion Aslan. And the two of them bond over their imperfections, just like y'all have been saying. And it's, mm. I think it's, it may be my very favorite of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia stories. I love that story because of um, this friendship. Man, that makes me want to go read it again. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's been a minute since Voyage of the Dawn Treader for me. And in, in my own life, it's certainly true too, that the people that um, have seen me at my very, very worst, but have loved me anyway, have loved me in spite of, and have not been, have not been afraid to own that part in themselves that likens them to me, but have embraced it. Those people are the ones that have kind of, well, to use a C.S. Lewis phrase, they have given me a face, mm-hmm. right? They have, they have made me beautiful by an act of their own love, by a willful act of their own love. They have given me a name and they have made me belong. And uh, through them, I have experienced grace. Yeah. And it's been such a, um, a profound experience walking through relationships like that in my life. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It happens pretty frequently, thank God, because I think it's in those moments when I need to be covered and loved like that, that I'm raw enough and real enough to have a friendship with someone else. And it's so counterintuitive because when you, when you go about trying to to have a friend, when you go about seeking a friend, the impulse is always to get yourself all shined up and yeah, pretty. to put on the best face you have, Yeah, right? yeah. The impulse is no one's going to like me unless I go ahead and perform here, right? right. And I got to perform well or they're going to hate me. But turns out when you perform really well, people hate you. <laughs> they're, they're intimidated. <laughs> yeah. And they think you're faking it because in fact- you are. They can sense pretense. Yeah. 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 But when you, when you're vulnerable and weak, um, the impulse is to cover. And I just think those authors that you've mentioned today and Lewis as well, they knew that so, so well. They must have experienced it in vulnerability themselves. And so have that to pass along to others. Yeah. It's actually something about that first Lewis quote that, that sticks in my mind. And I'm not sure it's true. He says friendship is unnecessary. And he says that because he's trying to make an analogy to philosophy or art, something that's like, um, it's like adorning your life and making it, uh, making it valuable and beautiful. It's not utility. You don't use it. But I think, um, I, I would quibble with the word unnecessary because it's, um, it is the thing that makes life worth living. He's, it, he does say that at the end. He says it, does, it doesn't have survival value, but it gives value to survival. I think without people like this who see you and identify with you and give you a face, what, what is there to be here for, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. I think we're made for relationships. I think so too. And those, those relationships that are real like that really do help us toward the ultimate relationship that we have with, with God. Can I read a short passage from Great Expectations just for the fun of it? Oh, yeah. I oh, wish I'm you so would. I'm so glad you're going to read. I know what passage you're going to read. I'm going to read a, a Joe Gargery passage from Great Expectations because Dickens is a great way to to, um, I don't know what the word I'm saying. To round this discussion out. to illustrate what we've been talking about. And the re one of the reasons it's a great way to illustrate is because it's not subtle. Mm -hmm. No, no. 
Not Dickens one of Dickens' strong point subtlety. No, the le- maybe the least <laughs> subtle of all our favorites. And he gives us in Joe Gargery, the um, the supporting character from Great Expectations, a great picture of friendship in all of the 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 ways that you guys have been talking about it. But I just there's this one passage that I just have got to read. It's when Joe is um, confiding to Pip uh, about how much he loves Pip's sister, who happens to be his wife, Joe's wife. And he says, um, it were but lonesome then, said Joe, living here alone. And I got acquainted with your sister. Now, Pip, Joe looked firmly at me as if he knew I was not going to agree with him. Your sister is a fine figure of a woman. (laughs) I could not help looking at the fire in an obvious state of doubt. (laughs) Whatever family opinions or whatever the world's opinions on that subject may be, Pip, your sister is, Joe tapped the top bar with the poker after every word following, a fine figure of a woman. (laughs) I can think of nothing better to say than, I'm glad you think so, Joe. (laughs) So am I, returned Joe, catching me up. I am glad I think so, Pip. A little redness or a little matter of bone here or there, what does it signify to me? I sagaciously observed, if it didn't signify to him, to whom did it signify? Certainly, assented Joe. That's it. You're right, old chap. When I got acquainted with your sister, it were the talk how she was bringing you up by hand. Very kind of her, too, all the folks said. And I said, along with all the folks. (laughs) As to you, Joe pursued with a countenance expressive of seeing something very nasty indeed, If you could have been aware how small and flabby and mean you was, dear me, you'd have formed the most contemptible opinion of yourself. (laughs) Not exactly relishing this, I said, never mind me, Joe. But I did mind you, Pip, he returned with tender simplicity. When I offered to your sister to keep company and to be asked in church at such times as she was willing and ready to come to the forge, I said to her, and bring the poor little child. God bless the poor little child, I said to your sister. There's room for him at the forge. I broke out crying and begging pardon and hugged Joe round the neck, who dropped the poker to hug me and to say, ever the best of friends, ain't us, Pip? Don't cry, old chap. Not subtle, but it is beautiful. It's not subtle. If you weren't handed this book when you were 10, that might not make you weep your eyes out. But I was, and so Mm -hmm. it does. (laughs) So he says, ever the best of friends, four times in Great Expectations. And they, it's almost like the, um, the depth of meaning in a villanelle. Every time it comes around again, he's saying something more profound about the friendship that he offers to Pip and the depth of the identification that he offers. There's room for you at the forge with me. Mm -hmm. And the circumstances get more and more dire and he continues to double down on what, everything he means by ever the best of friends. It is super duper powerful. Yes, I is. thought I you were going to, um, so I thought you were going to read the scene where he comes to Pip in London after Pip has uh, gone all high and mighty on him and kind of divorced himself from him uh, because he's base and Pip is now refined, right? Uh, but Pip has run up uh, all of his bills and gotten really, really sick and he he has not a friend in the world, really, in that moment. But when he wakes up, he finds that Joe has come to him 
and that he has nursed him back to health and he has paid all of his debts. Yep. And then he turns around and goes home, mm-hmm. uh, never expecting anything in return. He just came and ministered to the boy in need. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't say, and now you'll, now you'll come back and see us sometime, right? He no. does, there's no, there are no strings attached to that relationship. Right. Uh, yeah. I, that, I think that that scene is, um, that's the scene that left me weeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he leaves a note with him at that moment. He's, he, the note says, not wishful to intrude. I have departured for you are well again, dear Pip and will do better without Joe. P.S. Ever the best of friends. It's great. We have to stop talking about it now. I'm going to start hiccuping. <laughs> For me, it's it's two figures in the in the all of literature that I would imitate if I had the strength and character, and it's Joe Gargery and Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> and the rest is all dust, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, man, what a what a great meditation on friendship. Any any parting shots from anyone? I mean, it's not as though those are the only works that discuss this. It's a pretty good swath we've cut, though, I think. Well, you could talk long about friendship, but I think I think you've done a great job. I love the stuff that you guys brought up. There's so much truth in it to chew on. Well, thank you all for, for bringing your thoughts. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'll be with you again soon for another of the grand questions of Western literature. And in between now and then, do tell someone that you love them. <laughs> Happy reading, friends. See you next time. Happy reading, everybody. Happy reading. We love you. Happy reading. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Bibliophiles. We're so glad to be a part of a community with such kind and thoughtful folks. If you like what you hear, please rate the show, share with your book-loving buddies, and join us online on Facebook to participate in the ongoing conversation. We would love to hear from you. Tune in next week as we tackle one more great question. What is the nature of love? Until then, happy reading. <laughs>